I uh, want to invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to go out the back, your teacher will meet you. Um, so let me open with a word of prayer, and then we'll start with our scripture. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're, we're progressing through Luke, and we're getting to a very dark time uh, where you will go to the cross. And this next step, Lord, I, I find myself coming to the pulpit to preach this with feet dragging. I don't want this to happen. But, Lord, this is the means by which you save us. And so I pray that as we look at these things and we remember the darkness that's descending, that uh, it would remind us of the severity of our sin, what, what sin is actually like, what it actually cost. Lord, let that weigh heavy on us. And, Lord, Holy Spirit, this, this passage this morning is very difficult, and we, we need your assistance. We need you to open our eyes and our hearts. Lord, I need you to open my mouth, and we long to hear what you will say to us this morning. So, Lord Holy Spirit, please come and make this word resonate. Make it accomplish its purpose. Lord, you've promised that your word does not return to you void, and we pray that that would be true now. So be with us in the preaching of your word, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. So, um, we remember two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' first trial. And that was before the religious authorities. And, and what we saw in that was that religion without faith is deadly. It's horrible. And because they had the form of religion, um, but they didn't have the faith, when God himself is standing before them, they hated him and killed him, or wanted him killed. They had to turn him over. So what we're seeing this week now is the second half of that. This is the rest of the trials. This is where Jesus is now turned over to the civil authorities. And so uh, what we're going to look at this morning is a grave injustice. The, the biggest injustice that could ever be, ever could happen. Um, that's what we're going to see this morning. Uh, Luke, again, he's, he's really switched into narrative mode. He tells us the story unadorned. He adds no commentary to it. He just tells what happened. Um, and like last, or two weeks ago, we had the help of Jesus speaking. And I said, when Jesus speaks, that's what that's about. Jesus says practically nothing in this section. So we have, to, um, we have to look at the broader picture and ask, what is Luke doing with this? What is, what is he telling this story this way for? Um, and again, this story is a little different than any other synoptics. Uh, there are books on harmonization of the Gospels that can line up the Holy Week for you. Um, I, I would commend them to you. I want to listen to Luke on this and let Luke's words speak. So what I'm going to do this morning is, like uh, we did the last week, is just kind of go through the story and see what it is. And then take that and understand what, um, what I think Luke is trying to say to us through it. So let's just take a look at, at what happens. It starts out with the whole company of them arose and brought him to Pilate. So what has happened is they've had this sham religious trial where they asked Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And Jesus responded, if I tell you, you won't believe. And if I ask you, you won't answer. In other words, we've been around this block. I'm not saying anything. And so they say, well, are you the son of God? And his response is, you're going to see the son of God standing in glory. And his, his message is, it's too late at that point. And so what they decide is, he's a blasphemer. He, he is speaking against God, and so he must be executed. Now, the problem was... Um, the Roman occupiers did not give the, um, the Jews the authority to execute people. So what they've got to do is they now have to take him to the civil authorities and get him executed by them. So that's what's happening is they all arise, the whole group of them go, and they take him to Pilate and say, kill him. This guy is, is a problem. Now what we're going to see is their accusations switch here. Before it was, you said that you were the son of, man, or the son of God. And now they switch and they say, hey, he's trouble for Rome um, because that's what will get him executed. So they pick him all, they all get up and they all go and they take him to Pilate. And they began to accuse him saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So this is their accusations they're bringing before him. Three accusations that are not quite equal. The first one is he's misleading our nation. He's coming out and he's deceiving us. He's, he's telling us things that aren't true. Now, wait till you get to the next one. That has tremendous weight. Because the next thing that they accuse him of is, 
forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Tribute means tax. It's the amount of money that's due. Do you remember the story of when they brought to, to Jesus, he said, is it right for us to pay taxes or not? And he said, give me the coin. Who's in script, whose picture is this? Caesar. And he says, and give to Caesar what's Caesar and give God what's God. What he said there was, on that coin was an inscription that said Caesar was God. So he says, give him what he's due, which is this coin. Don't give him what he's not due, which is worship. He's not God. So Jesus very carefully parsed that out and gave him the answer. So when they come to him and they say, he forbids us to give tribute to Caesar, do you get what they're saying? What he forbid us to give to Caesar was worship, not money. This is, this is heresy of the highest order on the part of the priest by saying that, by accusing Jesus of that very thing. What they're saying is, it's, it, he's telling us that it's wrong to worship Caesar. That's how you parse that out. So when they say he's misleading the nation, oh my goodness. Is it misleading to a nation to say, don't worship your emperor, worship the true God in heaven? That's not misleading. It will, however, cause problems in the empire. Because the empire is founded on this idea that Caesar has a divine right to rule. And so that's why they're bringing this up. So he's misleading our nation. He's forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And then the final charge, and this is the one that really is the problem as far as Pilate's concerned, that he's saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And so what, he's, what they're saying is, look, Pilate, this man is claiming to be a king. There's only one king. We know who that is. He's, in, he's Caesar in Rome. And so if you don't do something about this guy, you're fostering a rebellion because this man claims to be the Christ. He claims to be a king. That's a direct threat to the authority in Rome. Um, also, don't miss this. Jesus, uh, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's the title king. It's the Greek word for anointed, Christos, to anoint. It is a translation of the Hebrew word for the anointed one, which is Messiah. And the Messiah is a kingly role. Often in popular culture, we talk about the Messiah complex. That's somebody who's going to die for something else or something like that. That's not what Messiah means. That's what our Messiah did. But what our Messiah mean, what Messiah itself means is he's anointed. He is the king. And so that's the real charge here is this man is claiming to be a competing king with Caesar, Pilate. Do something about that. He's claiming that we shouldn't give worship to Caesar because he's the king. Do something about that. He's misleading our nation because he says we shouldn't offer worship to Caesar and that he is the true king, Pilate. Do something about that. That's the charge. This is how they plan to get him executed. And so Pilate turns to him and says, are you the king of the Jews? You notice he bypasses all the other stuff. We're not going to talk about that. The real issue is, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Are, are you going to rise up and be a, a, a rival to who the real king is here? And so Jesus, the only thing he says in here is, you have said so. That is a non-answer. He's not saying yes. He's not saying no. He's saying, that's the words that you have just uttered. It, 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 he won't give an answer. And why won't he give an answer? The same reason he wouldn't give an answer to the uh, Pharisees or the, the chief priests when they ask. If I tell you, you won't believe. Now, other gospels, there's a lot more dialogue on this. But the way Luke portrays it is, this is it. And Jesus will speak no more. He's done. I have, you have said so. I won't, I won't address this anymore with you, Caesar, or Pilate. And so what does that mean? Well, look at Pilate's response. Pilate then turns to the chief priest in the crowd. And he says, I find no guilt in him. So even in Jesus' answer, he says, are you the king? You have said so. That's not guilty. He, he hasn't done anything. So Pilate is... is not abdicating his position. He's just saying, look, guys, this isn't enough. There's not enough to accuse this man. I find no guilt in him. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee, even to this place. Look, Pilate, he's messing with your throne. He's messing with the whole province that you're in charge of, and you have got to do something about it. What they unwittingly did was gave Pilate a way out. 
When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at the time. So Pilate's like, look, I don't want to deal with this. This guy's innocent. This is one of those weird Jewish things that I never really understood. Oh, wait, he's a Galilean. Excellent. Herod was one of the tetriarchs. He was one of these uh, deputy-appointed semi-quasi-kings that were in charge of different regions. He belongs to one of those regions. Excellent. Send him over there. Because Herod's in Jerusalem. Why is Herod in Jerusalem? He's the, he's the tetriarch of Galilee. Why is he in Jerusalem? Because it's the Passover. Herod is wanting to be this good Jewish king. He wants to put on his good show, so of course he would come to the festival and, and participate in Passover. He needs to be seen doing that because he's the Jewish king. He's not a king. He's not even from the line of David. But this is what he wants to be portrayed as. So essentially what Herod does is he punts. Um, it's football season, so beware there are football illustrations coming. When, you're, when you've got one down left, fourth down, you don't think you can make it to the, the first down marker, you turn around and punt. And that's what Pilate just did, is he's like, I haven't got enough here to kill the guy. They don't want me to let him go. I'm punting. Send him over to Herod. Um, what we'll learn is he didn't really care for Herod anyway. So this is kind of a way to just, hey, I'm dumping my problem on somebody else. So he sends him over to Herod. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Herod receives Jesus gladly because he wanted a magic show. If Jesus was to look at him and say, Herod, I'm the king of the Jews, Herod would not have been so happy. He was wanting a dog and pony show. Hey, I heard you did these things. Do something for me. Show me what you can do. That's why he receives him. So he questioned him at some length, but Jesus made no answer. So he's needling Jesus, trying to figure out who Jesus is. Come on, tempt him into doing something. And Jesus just stands there. He will not answer. Jesus recognizes, I am not under your authority, Herod. I don't have to answer you. I'm here on a divine mission. I have a role to fulfill, and I'm not going to play your game. And so he just stands there. He's just silent, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. So they're still at it. They are still anxious to get Jesus executed. So they're trying to tell Pilate, hey, this is what he said. This is what he did. They're throwing, hurling accusations at him. And so Herod is now getting frustrated because he can't deal with him, but he didn't get the show that he wanted. And so he starts... Him and his soldiers taunt, uh, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Herod himself, you often picture the, the, the uh, soldiers mistreating Jesus. It says Herod and his soldiers. So they all were standing there mocking Jesus together. Since Jesus wouldn't perform for King Herod, Herod mocks him and treats him, uh, treats him with contempt. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Remember the prophecy back in, in eight, chapter 18? He said, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He will be poorly treated, shamefully treated, handed over to the Gentiles, executed, buried, and rise on the third day. We're just marching right through that. We're heading right through that. Here now, the Jews themselves are taunting and, and making fun of him. And so they array him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. So after mocking, after, after taunting and making fun of Jesus, they get out the best clothes and they put him on him and they march him back. And what that is, is this is a huge joke. This is, isn't this just hilarious? This man who thinks he's the king of the Jews, look at what we can do with him. And he just sends him back to Pilate as, as scornfully as possible. This cracks Herod up, I mean Pilate up. Pilate sees this and probably, I can imagine he's, he's sitting there and when Jesus came walking in with this splendid clothing on, Herod just burst out laughing. I mean Pilate burst out laughing. Isn't this great? Here's your king of the Jews. What are we going to do with him? And it says that they became friends over that. Do you get that they became friends over something absolutely wicked? After, over absolutely, something absolutely horrible? Jesus, the most perfect man that's ever lived, absolutely sinless, 
is being taunted and made fun of and put forward as a joke. And that knits two men together. That's what wickedness does. It knits people together over their wickedness. So they become friends because of this. It's just amazing. So Pilate now has said, okay, well, he's, he's kicked the ball back to me. I've got to deal with this. So he calls together the chief priests and the ruler and the people. So there's a crowd now assembled outside the praetorium to hear what, what he's got to say. And he says to them, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Pilate has just pronounced absolute truth. Nothing has been done by him. Everything Jesus has done, not just today, but throughout his entire ministry, none of it has been worthy of any condemnation. Pilate's exactly right. And so what should Pilate's response be at this point? I am releasing him. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to put a guard around him. If you touch this innocent man, you're going to jail. That's what he should do. Listen to what he says. I will therefore punish him and release him. Because he's done nothing wrong, because he's an innocent man, I will punish him and release him. How's that? I will be this wicked, but not that wicked. Is that good enough for you all? It's, it's horrible. It's just a terrible thing that he's doing. But it gets worse. But they all cried out together. So the whole crowd now, standing in front of the praetorium, yelling at Pilate, they yell together, away with him and release to us Barabbas. So we don't want this Jesus guy, even though he's been healing people, even though he's been preaching forgiveness of sins and release from bondage and and curing people that have been oppressed by demons and all of these things. We don't want him. We'll take Barabbas. And so Luke has to explain to us, who is Barabbas? Barabbas is a man who's thrown into prison for an insurrection that started in this city and for murder. So he didn't just start a rebellion against Caesar, against Rome. He actually was out killing people. So now you've got these two men standing there before you. Jesus, who has pronounced sinless, the Bible tells us he never sinned. And Barabbas, who's an enemy of the state and a murderer, who would you pick? Who would you want released on this, this day of feast, this festival of the, the Passover, when Pilate traditionally released a prisoner for you? Who would you ask for? They asked for the murderer. Away with this Jesus. We don't want anything to do with him. Release to us this murderer. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. He's like, look, guy, I don't want to do this. This is a bad idea. If I start killing innocent people like this guy, we're, we're going to have problems here in, in Judea. And my job in Judea is to ensure the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So I don't want to kill this guy. I'd rather kill the one that, that's starting the insurrection, if you don't mind. So he, he addressed them once more because he wants to release them. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Now it's gone from away with him to kill him in the most shameful, the most painful, the worst way that Rome has to offer. Kill him that way. A third time, so this is three times Pilate's trying to release Jesus. A third time, he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving of death. Therefore, I'll punish and release him. So he's back to that same standard. Look, I, let me just beat him for not doing anything and release him, and then we're good. But the people are now stirred up, and they won't, they won't go there. They won't, they won't have anything to do with it. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. The injustice has now been proclaimed because the people demanded it. So Pilate de uh, decided that their demand would be, uh, should be granted, he released the man whom had been in prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. It's amazing the way Luke writes that. He doesn't even name Barabbas again. He simply lists his guilt. The man, the insurrectionist, the murderer, him they released. 
But Jesus, he turned over to their will. He's going to be crucified. What are we supposed to do with this? This is the story. This is just how Luke reported it. It's just the flat statement of facts. Notice Luke doesn't unpack anything in here for us. There's no commentary on it. No, imp- no interpretation. Simply this. I think what Luke is leading us to is he is showing us this trial in its unvarnished, unedited form, putting it before us. And what I'm hoping that you're feeling is the same thing I felt when I read this. Outrage. Shock. How can such injustice happen? Jesus has been declared a number of times innocent. He has done nothing and is now walking towards the cross. We have been walking with Jesus for three years in his ministry. We've seen what he's been doing. He's done nothing but good for three years. Healing people. Raising the dead. Preaching forgiveness. Releasing those captive by demons. He has done nothing wrong. And the response of the people is, kill him. It's a huge injustice. And I think we're supposed to feel the weight of that at this point. This is wrong. This should not be. Pilate felt the weight of it. That's why he's trying to release him. I find nothing wrong with this guy. You you people, let him go. And they won't let him go. And so Pilate capitulates and says, okay, then I guess I'll kill him. It's an outrage. And and what we should feel at this, we we maybe get anesthetized to it because we hear the story every every year as we go through uh, Easter. But don't, Don't let that bypass you. Don't let that harden your heart to the fact that this is unjust. This is wrong. It is absolutely wrong on every level. There is nothing good that's come out of this. The the mocking, the acknowledgement of innocent, and now the sentence of death is wrong. If that were to happen here in the United States, we would be in outrage. You can't do that. You can't kill somebody for not doing anything. Announce to the world that he has done nothing and then say, I'm going to kill him anyway. You can't do that. We have a moral outrage against injustice, and we should. It's part of who we are as people because God is a God of justice. We're made in his image. Injustice rings hollow in our ears. It feels horrible. Now, what we should do with this then is seek justice. That's what we're supposed to do with it. In our political climate today, the term justice is kicked around like a football. means different things to different people at different times. What it should mean for us, who are evangelical Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of the Messiah, what it should mean for us is what the Bible says it means for us. That's what it means for us to be evangelicals. And so... If we go with what the Bible says, there will be times when we'll agree with one party and disagree with the other. Uh, One man once said we should be moving targets because these secular organizations are never going to get it exactly right. They're going to overlap with with Christian belief, but there should be times when we're challenging whatever system it is and saying, no, the biblical standard of justice is this and this alone. So what I want to do is Give us a little bit of uh, uh, work on what biblical justice is. While we have the outrage of Jesus being unjustly tried, while we're having that, sit, that, that current deep-seated visceral response, let's take a look at what biblical justice is. How does the Bible define it? Because that's what we should say is just. So I was doing some research on it, and I think the the one of the best definitions I found was a, uh, a man named David C. Jones. He was a professor at Covenant Theological Seminary. He died in March. And he wrote a book called Biblical Christian Ethics. And in it, he talks about justice. And this is how he defines justice. He says, justice means that every human being should be treated according to what it means to be, the, to be one who bears the image of God and who has a divine calling to fulfill. So he starts, his definition of justice starts with God. It starts with who God is. We are made in God's image. We are image bearers of God. All of us, all of humanity, not just certain sections of it. And so that's where we start when we seek justice is every person I'm looking at, every person I see, even the guy I yelled at on the freeway yesterday, is made in God's image. 
That is an image bearer of God. Therefore, that image bearer is entitled to certain honor and respect. Not because they're perfect, not because they're nice, not because they didn't cut me off when they did. I'm not bitter. But because they are image bearers of God. That's why they're entitled to this. So when we seek justice, we start with the fact that whoever we're looking at, we have to remember this person is an image bearer of God. I had jury duty a while ago. I didn't get selected. I got up to the stage. They found out I was a pastor and said, thank you, you're dismissed. Um, I, don't think it was, I don't know if it was because of pastors. They asked me a question and I hesitated. At any rate, as a juror sitting there looking at the facts of the case, what I've got to be doing is seeking justice, remembering that both the alleged victim and the alleged perpetrator are image bearers. That's where we start with justice. That's where we start. Not with what political party they're a member of, not with what color t-shirt they're wearing, but the fact this is a human being created in God's image. So that's where it begins. Therefore, when we seek justice, what we're asking is, Lord, we want this person to be treated as you would have them to be treated. Does God ever practice injustice? At, at the, the, the judgment at the end of the world, at the resurrection of the just and the unjust, when they all stand before the throne of God and Jesus judges each one and says, you're a goat to the left, you're a sheep to the right, will there be even a tinkle of injustice in any of that? Absolutely not. When Jesus comes and he reigns on this earth as this earth's king and his resurrected saints reign with him in the millennial kingdom, will he have any partiality and say, well, you gave more to my political campaign? It's foolishness. This is the king. There will be no injustice. So when we look at someone, we say this is an image bearer of God and therefore entitled to all that God has bestowed on them, and we want to treat them as God would have them be, to be treated, which means to prosecute the guilty and to pardon the innocent, regardless of who they are. Now, we're fallen human beings. Sin enters into this and messes it all up. We will not get justice perfectly. We will always be biased. We will always mess it up in some degree. Hopefully, through the wisdom of our founding fathers, building a, a system that involves jurors, the errors can hopefully cancel each other out and we can get and approach actual real justice. True justice will be at the end. Now we're seeking justice. So that's what it means to seek justice is to look for what God wants for this individual. How would God judge this person? As imperfectly, as flawed as I can be, I'm still an image bearer and that's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. So one of the places that I think shows really um, the importance of justice to God are the prophets. If you're reading through the Bible this year, which I ask you to do, so I know you are, is you're probably heading through the prophets, maybe into the minor prophets at this point. If you've been paying attention, what you should see is the cry for justice over and over and over again. It's everywhere. I couldn't list, I'd be standing here for 10 minutes listing Bible verses. So instead, what I did is I just picked one. Um, it's, it's one that I think illustrates it really well. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah starts with a, a, a thorough condemnation of, of Israel for their sin, just blasting them because of what they've done. But starting in verse 12, I, I want to just pick this up and show you how this fits with where we're at in Luke real quick. Listen to what he says. He, he, this is um, Isaiah writing to Israel. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. No new moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. You remember the trial that Jesus went through last time? Religion without faith. Listen to what he's saying. Is he saying you, you never have a Sabbath. You never do a new moon feast. Boy, if you would just pray to me. He, he, Jesus, God looks at him and he says, look, you guys, I'm fed up with all of that junk. It's all full of sawdust. 
You have no faith in me. You're going through all the religious practices for nothing. I find it offensive. Why do you trample my temple courts? You're supposed to come to my court in worship and prayer to bring sacrifice. And what you do is you trample it. You treat it like it's going to the mall. Why would you do that? He says, I can't stand your new moon and your Sabbath and your convocations. You come together for these great conferences, and I hate them. There's no faith in them. You don't care about me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make prayers. I won't listen because your hands are full of blood. And it's not the blood of sheep and goats. So they stand before God and they raise these hands that are dripping with the blood of the innocent. And he says, am I supposed to listen to that? I listened to a sermon on this by Thabiti Abimwali. Um, he's a pastor in uh, Anacostia. It's a neighborhood in Washington, D.C., a historic black neighborhood. And, and I was listening to him preach on this. He got to this part and he said, people will come to me and say, Pastor, do, does God hear the prayer of sinners? And he said, you know what worries me? Is there are times when God won't hear the prayers of saints. That's what's happening here. I'm not going to listen to you. Why? Because your hands are red with blood. So that's that first trial Jesus went through, is he's looking at him and saying, you have the religion down. You've got the motions in place. And I hate it. I can't stand it. Your, heart, your hands are red with blood. Now that comes to a pinnacle when they turn Jesus over to be crucified and demand that he be crucified. Their hands are dripping with blood at this point. The blood of the ultimate innocent. The poor and the needy in Israel may have sinned at one time or another. Jesus never sinned. So that's the danger of religion. Now listen to where he goes with this. He, he turns a corner and he says, okay, that's why I hate you. Here's what you need to do. How do you correct this? Starting in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves and make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. You notice religion is not in there. They got the religion. What they need to see is religion play itself out. So he says, wash yourself and remove your evil deeds from before me. Okay, what does that look like? In typical Hebrew poetry, which has reflections, that one verse will reflect the next, he says, cease to do evil, learn to do good. They're the same thing. To cease to do evil is not to do nothing. Because in doing nothing, that could be evil in certain cases. So it's not enough to not do evil. He says, learn to do good. Do the right things. Those two go together. The next one, he says, seek justice and correct oppression. Seek justice. Justice has a meaning in this verse. There is something specific that God is looking for Israel to do to seek justice. He's not saying execute it perfectly. You won't land on it every single time. But what I want you to do is seek justice, work toward justice, aim for justice, strive to be just. And how do you do that? The parallel is correct oppression. It's not ignore oppression. It's not don't practice oppression. Though those are included, don't ignore them and don't practice it. But he also says correct it. Where you find oppression, where you find people being oppressed, I want you to fix that. I want you to work for that. So you seek justice and you correct oppression. That's what you do. So who do we do that with? And, and he, the last portion is bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. There is a quartet of people in the Old Testament that God repeatedly points to and says, these are the folks that I want protected. These are the people that I'm watching out for. These are the folks that you have to care for. They are the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, and the poor. Why these folks? Because in this agrarian society where everything, you grew the food you ate. You didn't go to, to Winco or, or um, Walmart or something to get the food. You grew the food you ate or you traded for it. A widow is the most vulnerable. Unless her oldest son has decided, I will bring you into my house and care for you after my father's death, 
She's on her own. That was what the problem was with Ruth in the book of Ruth. When Naomi comes back to the land, her and her husband and her sons are all dead. And so she's coming back as the most vulnerable in all of society. She's got nothing. She's got nowhere to go. God says, protect her. Watch out for her. The same thing with an orphan. They didn't have orphanages in this time. If both your parents died, you're on your own. So what if you got an eight-year-old at this point? Can they earn a living? Have they inherited anything? They can't do anything. They are the most vulnerable. They are at the mercy of anybody coming by and saying, well, I'll take you in my house or here, have some food. The sojourner, that's a stranger who's, who's journeying amongst the Israelites. They're not, they're not Jews. They come from other nations, but they want to come and live and work and, and serve among the Jews. And, and it doesn't include conversion to Judaism. It just means strangers who want to live peaceably. They may be even interested in worshiping Yahweh or not, but they're there amongst you. These folks are vulnerable because they're not Jewish. They don't inherit land. They come in and they trade. And so it's possible to look at them as they're foreigners, they're outsiders, we can abuse them. We can take advantage of them. So seeking justice is looking out for the the foreigner, the person who is an outsider and is not one of us and saying, no, we gotta make sure we take care of them too. And then the poor, that just kind of sums it all up. Maybe they have a farm and maybe it failed. Um, maybe they have a farm and foreign raiders came in and drug stones across the whole thing and now it's just a man and his son and there's no way they can get the stones out. They can't plant a crop. Maybe it's the widow whose, whose husband has died and now she's destitute. So these are the groups that we are supposed to seek justice for and correct the oppression of those groups. This is the blood that's on the hands of Israel at this point. They're not doing that. Oh, they're offering sacrifices. They're waving um, censers with uh, incense in them. They're, they're offering lengthy prayers, but they're not caring for the poor. They're not caring for the marginalized. So Jesus here has, he has said before that he has identified himself with the marginalized. Who has he gone to every single time throughout the Gospels? He's always gone to the wrong person. The chief priests come and say, you're eating with sinners. And Jesus' response is, yeah, because they need a physician. He, goes, he, he lets himself be touched by a woman who has had a hemorrhage, has been bleeding for years. And once she sneaks up and touches him, and it's almost superstitious. I just touched the hem of his robe, almost a superstition. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, your faith has healed you. You've trusted me. You're healed. He's gone to this person who should be an outcast, a pariah, the wrong kind of people. This is who Jesus has always gone to. So when we look at Jesus' trial, he's walking in this unjust trial, being treated shamefully because he's continuing to identify with the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, the poor. He's continuing his ministry to them by entering into the suffering that they're taking part in. So that's where, that's where they're at. That's what they're doing. So is that just an Old Testament thing? God got mad at Israel. Uh, Isaiah pronounced judgment on them. That's done. They're over with. They're gone. Absolutely not. Is this, we're talking about God. We're not talking about a writing. God doesn't change, does he? Does he still care about the poor, the marginalized, the weak? Absolutely. We don't have such a problem in America now with widows because they inherit from their husbands. Their husbands have insurance. Um, often they, they, they do pretty well for themselves. Orphans, there are plenty of orphanages and adoption agencies. So we don't have to care about that anymore. Hands are clean. Blood dripped off. We're good. It's not who he's, he's not talking about those particular categories. He's talking about the category of the weak, the vulnerable, those who could be oppressed. We need to correct the oppression to them. And the proof of that comes in James, chapter 1. James um, is... Um, is talking about what it means to be religious. He's he's talking to Jewish Christians and explaining to them, this is what religion looks like, what true religion looks like. And so at the end of chapter one, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. So we use religion in kind of a negative term. James is using it in a positive way. If if your religion is real, if, if you really have faith, saving faith in Christ, this is what it looks like. Visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and keep oneself unstained by the world. 
That's your religion. How often do you hear that from evangelical pulpits? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen. Coming up on the anniversary of the Reformation, we need to hear that over and over again. James is not talking about saving faith. He's talking about religion, the life you live because you have saving faith. What does that look like? If it's pure and undefiled before God, you visit orphans and widows. You visit, you care for, you think about the marginalized, the weak, the vulnerable. That's what you do. And so listen to how he goes on in chapter 2. He says, my brother, show no partiality as you hold your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So he's, he's not dissing faith. He's saying faith is important. But as you're showing your faith, don't show partiality. For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit at my feet, have you not made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brethren. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him. Do you get what he just said? He's picturing exactly what we're seeing here. God has aligned himself with the vulnerable and the weak. God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's who we should be aligning ourselves with. Then he goes on, he says, but you've dishonored the poor man. Are you not rich? Are, are not the rich ones those who drag you into court? Do you have faith? Do you, do you trust that being drug into court in this situation will get you true justice? Look what they did to Jesus. He's saying, you, you look to the rich and the powerful and you say, oh, come and sit next to me. And to the poor man, you know, why don't you go sit at my feet? You know, it would be better if you sat over there because you kind of smell. So just move. What he's saying is you're doing the exact opposite of what Jesus is doing. This doesn't change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're still called to seek justice, to correct oppression. So what do we do? How do we do this? How do we, how do we even approximate doing that in our situation? How many of you are oppressing somebody right now? Anybody here kicked a, a, a poor person out of their row in, this, in the pew? It doesn't happen. So, so what are we supposed to do with this? How does it apply to us? Are we just, you know, this is the part of the Bible we get to ignore because it doesn't apply. Absolutely not. Are there people in our society, in America, are there people who are at risk? Are there people who are marginalized, who are powerless in our society? There are, and that's who we're called to identify with. So I just want to offer four steps to help us figure out what to do. The first is to remember. Remember that these people, whatever category they're in, are created in God's image. Whoever they are, they are created in God's image. Remember that. Remember that Jesus is the one who had died for them. He's, he's opened an opportunity for them. So one of the things you can do as you remember that these are image bearers, and I I'm preaching to myself on this one, is when you see a homeless person and they ask for something, to my shame, I just kind of grumble and turn and, <laughs> what would be really nice is if you have a moment, turn to them and say, how are you doing? Treat them like a human being. Treat them like an image bearer. You don't have to necessarily give them anything. It, it, sometimes it's better to not give them money. Sometimes the better answer would be pointing them to grace resources or buy him a sandwich instead of handing him cash. But the point is, remember that's an image bearer and treat them like an image bearer. Greet them. Be nice to them. If you got a bottle of water, offer him a bottle of water. Maybe that, that would be a blessing to them that day. It starts there. The second thing is, we need to listen. We need to listen to those who are oppressed, those who are marginalized in our society not to the talking heads on television and social media first. It's so easy to turn on the television and hear somebody explain to you what the situation is with Group X. How many people in Group X do you know? How many have you personally spoken to? 
If the answer is zero, turn off the TV and stop listening to them for the moment. You're getting somebody else's interpretation. What we have to do is listen to those who are marginalized. Listen to those who are, 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 who are weak and at risk. The, the biggest group, the most important group in America that is at risk and targeted on a regular basis is the unborn. Unborn children have zero voice in this nation. As a matter of fact, as a nation, we have said it is, it is legal for a mother to kill that child up until the moment that the child passes through the birth canal. Somehow that's magic. These are the people who are the most, re most marginalized. Can you listen to an unborn child? You can listen to a heartbeat. The other part that we're forgetting in this, there's two people involved in that pregnancy. And so we strive and we fight for the unborn. There's another person involved in that pregnancy. That's called an, unborn, or called an unwed mother most often. Now, there are women who get designer abortions who, you know, they just fashionably try it and go, it'd be inconvenient to have a child and get an abortion. That's a very small portion. There are a group of women who have been raped or suffered incest who are pregnant who go get an abortion. That's a very small portion. A big portion of women who get abortions are terrified that they're carrying a baby they can't care for. They're terrified because they have gotten pregnant either too young or the man that they had sex with has deserted them and left and gone. And so what we can unwittingly do is we fight for the unborn is we can victimize the poor mother who's carrying that child too. It, it can happen and the left is gonna make it look like that's all we ever do. This is why we support CareNet. Because CareNet doesn't, doesn't come in and say, don't have an abortion, okay, go and be blessed. They say, please don't have an abortion and we're here to walk with you as you care for this child. We will provide training for you. We've got some diapers and some wipes, we've got some formula. How can we help you as the child is born? We're gonna offer lessons to you and the, the baby's father to teach them how to raise the child. That is showing compassion. That is seeking justice. That is, is correcting oppression. Because we're not just saying don't get an abortion. We're saying please don't get an abortion and we will help you walk, we will walk with you through that. So that's an example of listening. Is listen to the pregnant mother. Some of it is done out of sheer wickedness. Some of it is done out of horror and desperation. They just don't know where else to go. And that's the one that we need to side with. And you, you won't hear people talk that way in the media. They're going to they're gonna politicize this and turn abortion into a football thing. It's a, it's a health care issue. We have to stop and listen to the mother and plead for the child. That, that's a, a, the clearest example I, I can think of there is to listen. And then we need to sympathize. You need to stop and feel. As Jesus' trial, the sham trial that he's been through, the injustice of it has weighed on our hearts and made us feel outraged that they would treat our master, our savior, the perfect man that way, the walking son of God, the God incarnate. You can't treat him like that. You should feel that way. Go ahead and feel angry. And as you talk with people, as you meet people, as you listen to what they have to say, don't be afraid to feel bad. If it's real, if it's genuine, if you are truly seeking justice and correcting oppression, you will feel bad. The weight of it will weigh on you. You may even cry as you hear these stories. That's okay. It's all right to sympathize with the marginalized. Isn't that exactly what our king is doing right now? He's sympathizing with those who have zero political power because he doesn't say a word in the trial. He doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. He is sympathizing with us. He's feeling our feeling. He's walking in our shoes to say, yes, I know what it means to be marginalized. So sympathize. That's why Jesus is standing there in this trial. We're his disciples. The only sight we had in Luke so far of a disciple was Peter, and he's out in the dark crying. Jesus is alone. The homeless person is alone. The pregnant mother that's terrified is alone. Jesus is alone. Sympathize with them. Feel with them. 
And then the last thing we can do, because you, you get to that point, you go, well, then, you know, I can never look at social media because there's so much injustice in our country. What am I supposed to do? One of the things I've been hearing a lot lately is go local. You cannot change, personally, you cannot change the policy of the United States of America when it comes to immigration. You personally cannot change the policy of America when it comes to abortion rights, quote unquote. You can't do anything about that. You can vote, you can make your voice heard, but you can't hand somebody a sandwich and make abortion wrong or immigration get fixed. But you can on a local level. That's where politics should happen is on the local level. That's where care and, and engagement should happen. So what you can do is look on a local level and say, where am I seeing injustice? There was a thing in the paper on Thursday asking uh, ABC, or uh, uh, Antelope Valley Press asked, um, so this medical, or this marijuana facility that's coming in, is it good for the valley or bad? Well, two of our members of our church went to the city council meeting. Jen and Steve Carlson went to the city council meeting and argued this marijuana factory that you're building is horrible for our society. It's going to be terrible for our city. And they even listed the reasons why. Because since it's still illegal federally, they can't deal with banks. So it's a cash operation. Guess who loves cash operations? Organized crime. Really easy to hide it. You are inviting organized crime. So they're going to build a facility out by Foxfield, and they're going to build a processing center right up the street from us. And it's a cash operation. Folks, this is, in, this is not just. This is inviting trouble into the city just to get the money. They just want the taxes. So what do you do? You do what Jen and Steve did. They went to the city council and said, please don't do this. This doesn't make sense. So as you've gone through these different things, looking for people who are marginalized, who are at risk, is act locally. It's really easy for us to, to see a video on, on um, social media of a black man being pulled over and having an altercation with a cop and, and make snap judgments. There's nothing we can do about that. That happened in another place. We can deal with it here locally. We can, we can support our police when they're being threatened. We can support people who are innocent and being persecuted by police who are a little bit out of control by writing and, and making our voice heard. There's ways for us to side with the marginalized and side with those who are at risk. Jesus is going through this trial facing the bulk of injustice because we are participating in injustice. We have. It's just the way life is in, in any nation. We won't execute it perfectly. I just had a conversation with a man who was, somebody said that, um, that um, what is a threat to white supremacists is to see a liberated black man, an educated, intelligent, liberated black man. And it is, because that doesn't fit their mold. It doesn't fit their, their, their explanation that, well, we have to dominate them because they're, they're weak and stupid, and so we got to rule over them. To see a liberated black man standing there, that's good. And so somebody came, came after that and said, well, what about the gospel? Um, that's called the Jesus juke, where you just throw Jesus like a trump card or something to avoid the situation. My response was, Evangelicals in this country owned slaves. We did. Evangelicals, Bible-believing Christians who preached the gospel owned slaves. Evangelical Christians who believed the Bible, who preached the gospel, defended the right, or the right to own slaves. The Puritans were chaplains on slave ships. So to look and say, well, the gospel will take care of it, it's, it's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's the people. So to correct oppression is to own oppression, is to say, folks, this is who we are. There were some evangelicals in America who were abolitionists. There were many, many more who were slave owners, slave uh, traders. That's the reality. Don't whitewash it. Don't downplay it. Don't yeah, but. Own it. That's how you correct oppression, is by saying that's the way it was. What can we learn from that? And, and ask, what blind spot do I have that was, that's so glaring? Because they had one. That's what it means to correct oppression, not to ignore it. 
So that's what I mean by the fact that Jesus is suffering injustice because we have practiced injustice. We're participating in it in some way. We just are. You personally may not be doing it, but we as a nation are. In, in different ways, at different times, in different places. We're doing something wrong. And Jesus is suffering under persecution to deliver us from that. And what we have to hold on to in the midst of all of this, as we're feeling the weight of these burdens, that we get the idea that the Puritans who I love to read argued for slavery, argued that they could own another human being. Some of them even went to this fact that said, we're doing them a favor by owning them. We have brought them out of pagan Africa and brought them into Christian America so that they can hear the gospel. Oh, and work on our farm for free. It, it's, it's terrible. We have to own that and say, I may not be doing that, but my country has got certain blind spots even now that we're going to do something that stupid. Jesus is dying for that. He's going to the cross and he's bearing not just the sins of the individual people, he's bearing the sin of oppression and injustice and walking to the cross to die for it. Why? So that he will rise again and ascend to the throne and the king of the universe will rule over this world and say, injustice is done. I have suffered for it. I have broken its curse. And it's done. I will, infl- I will bring justice to this world. So the biblical command between then and now is seek justice. Be prepared to be wrong. Be prepared to like people you don't want to like and to agree with people you think you shouldn't agree with. Because sometimes they're going to be right and sometimes they're going to be wrong. We are called first and foremost, Daniel told us this last week, we are called first and foremost to be loyal to our king. We are before anything else, we are Christians. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We are disciples of Jesus the Messiah. We're subjects of King Jesus first. Then as that, we live in a nation called America where we have democracy and we can vote. So there will be times when our king will agree with something that's happened in America or disagree with something that's happened in America. Be prepared to flip back and forth on some things, to to fit nobody's category, because that's what it means to follow the king. And this is how we get rid of injustice. It's preparing us for the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns and executes justice perfectly. This is the end of his trial. What we're going to see next is him being handed over to crucifixion. So as unjust and as ugly as this trial is it's only getting worse before it gets better we're heading into darkness before the sun rises again let's pray lord i um i echo um, the prayers of the saints from the old testament i can think of a few of them who said that we are men of unclean lips and from people of unclean lips lord we we admit that our history is spotted with blood and that we're no more perfect than they were. And so, Lord, I, I pray for us as your people living as pilgrims in America. Uh, Lord, we have the confidence to know that you will not sweep away the righteous with the unjust. Through Ezekiel, you said, if Daniel, Job, and Moses were standing here, they would, be, they would be preserved, but the rest of the city wiped away. Abraham pleaded on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah that if there were just a few righteous people, and instead you delivered Job, or delivered uh, Lot from, uh, from that wicked nation. So Lord, we know that in the midst of this nation that we live in, we are secure because we're your people. We're righteous not because we're good, but because you have declared us righteous. And so we stand here. But Lord, in the exile, you told Israel, pray for the the city in which you live and be a blessing to them. So Lord, would you, through your church in this nation, in this valley, in this city, bring blessing to those around us. Lord, help us to seek justice, cause us to correct oppression. And Lord, may we walk in line with you, first and foremost, wherever that takes us and whoever that leads us to agree with or disagree with. 
Lord, make us your disciples, your followers, your subjects first. And may our allegiance be to the king who will one day stand on this earth and rule. We ask these things in your name, Jesus, for your kingdom and for your glory. Amen.